This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Wednesday, January 11th. He hadn't been to the border as president. Now he's spending time on both sides of it. We start here. We're at one of those inflection points. President Biden sits down in Mexico City to discuss migration, but what promises can he make? It's just so massive of a problem, and really, they need Congress to get involved. He also responded to revelations that classified documents were found in his old offices. We've got the latest from Mexico. Would a country that's not fighting against Russia invite Ukrainian soldiers over for training? That's really not something that happens normally, not at all. The new steps the Pentagon is taking to support Ukraine, and towns are saying you can have your solar revolution, just not here. The opposition won because they organized the heck out of this community. Our team goes back to a community where a solar company just had the crops scared out of it. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. The new year marked nearly two years in office for President Joe Biden. In all that time, he had not visited the southern border with Mexico. Not once. That changed this past weekend as he went to Texas. Instead of safe and orderly process at the border, we have a patchwork system that simply doesn't work as it should. And while he avoided calling the situation a crisis, there are still obvious concerns about these large influxes of migrants from Central and South America traveling north through Mexico seeking refuge in the U.S. in huge numbers. Well, this week, the president continued south to Mexico City, and yesterday he attended a summit between all three North American leaders, himself, Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So let's take you there right now. ABC's White House correspondent Karen Travers is there in Mexico City. And Karen, this was a pretty wide-ranging agenda, right? What was at the top of their lists? So migration, no surprise, was at the top of the agenda for President Biden, especially in his meeting with the Mexican president. But, you know, Brad, they really also wanted to focus on other big issues, including supply chain issues and trying to bring manufacturing back to the U.S., to Canada and Mexico so that the three countries aren't so reliant on China. We're at one of those inflection points where what we do in the next several years is going to determine what the world looks like the next two, three, four decades. I think when you think about a trip like this, automatically you think border security. You think about the influx of migrants at the border. But the White House was also trying to emphasize just as strongly trade issues, supply chain issues, also drug trafficking. That was another big issue for the president. In just the last six months, our joint patrols in Mexico have resulted in the arrest of more than 7,000, 7,000 human smugglers. We've seized more than 20,000 pounds of deadly fentanyl at the border. Specifically the issue of fentanyl, which of course is such a big deal back in the U.S. with the number of drug overdose deaths that have been happening in recent years. Well, and as part of the reason we're hearing about those other issues, that on the topic of migration, like there aren't that many great solutions being proposed by these leaders or by their respective legislatures. Like, what, what do you mm-hmm. do besides say, like, 
hey, we wish these people would stop arriving in such desperate straits. Like, what do you do? Yeah, that's one of the things. You know, the White House was certainly downplaying expectations for any major breakthroughs at this summit on how to get a handle of this influx of migrants at the U.S. southern border. And he was appreciative. He thanked uh, the Mexican president for the work that the two countries are doing. You know, he announced this new plan uh, last week where the U.S. is going to immediately expel migrants from Nicaragua, Venezuela, Haiti, and Cuba. Cuba, who are crossing the border illegally. We also want to thank you, Mr. President, for stepping up to receive into Mexico those not following the lawful pathways we've made available instead of attempting to unlawfully cross the border between our countries. Mexico has agreed to take as many as 30,000 of those migrants. This was significant to announce this on the eve of this summit. There were questions about whether or not that number could go up from 30,000. Would there be more countries added to that list? The White House says it's too soon to say that right now. They want to see how this program works. But as you say, it's just so massive of a problem. And really, they need Congress to get involved. Our Republican friends and some few Democrats are very critical of what's going on at the border, but yet refuse to even look at the detailed document I submitted for the Congress to consider to reform the process completely. They need funding. They need more resources to be able to send it down to the border to be able to uh, help the state, local, and federal officials get a handle on the situation there. To which the Mexican president was like, please ask Congress to do something. Um, Absolutely. Karen, as he's abroad, then news breaks about these classified documents Mm -hmm. found at Biden's old offices at this Washington think tank where he worked after serving as VP. Reporters had asked him about it, but he had not answered until this moment. I mean, how did he explain all this? The president said he takes classified documents and information seriously. And he says he was surprised to learn that there were government records in his office at the University of Pennsylvania's Penn Biden Center. They immediately call the archives, immediately call the archives, turn them over to the archives. And I was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office. They found the documents, they reached out that day to the archives, and within a day, the next morning, they were in the hands of the government. This I thought was notable. The president said he doesn't know what's in the documents because his lawyers have suggested he not ask what they were. Mm. He ended his answer by saying he's fully cooperating with this review, he hopes it's finished soon, and that there will be more detail to share at that point. Yeah, and one of the more interesting kind of sub-questions in that was, should the American people have heard about this earlier, since apparently the DOJ has been looking at this for weeks. Mm-hmm. The president did not really answer that at this summit. All right. Karen Travers in Mexico. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brad. When Russia invaded Ukraine, one of the things Vladimir Putin was hoping for was that NATO countries would be so timid, so scared of provoking Russia that they would kind of just butt out. His thinking was Europeans rely on Russian energy, the Americans are tired of foreign wars, they might just let us do our thing. And so when these countries provided military aid to Ukraine, that was a big turning point in this war. Well, now the U.S. appears poised to offer even more weapons to the Ukrainians and even welcome their troops here in our country to learn how to use them. ABC's Louis Martinez covers the Pentagon. In fact, he's at the Pentagon right now. Louis, we've been hearing about these different weapons like Patriot missiles for a while now. But what are they 
and why are they seen as a big deal? After talking about Patriot missiles that are the most sophisticated air defense systems that the United States has in its inventory. They can strike targets maybe dozens of miles away. They can strike at incoming missiles. They can strike at incoming drones. Um, You name it, the Patriot can strike it, though it's not cost effective if you're going to be launching them against drones. So the thinking is that these are going to be launched against incoming cruise missiles, uh, which, of course, the Russians have been targeting uh, Ukraine's infrastructure for the last couple of months. This is a very important step uh, to create a secure airspace for Ukraine. The Ukrainians have been desperate for the Patriots. They're going to get them now. But you've got to train Ukrainian troops on that. And that's what's happening now. I can confirm that training for Ukrainian forces on the Patriot air defense system will begin as soon as next week at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. They're going to get about 100 Ukrainian troops that are going to be sent to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. That's the air defense school for the United States military, for the, primarily for the U.S. Army. And they're going to be spend several months being trained on how to use this complicated system. There's going to be classroom instruction. There's going to be field instruction. So, uh, so a Patriot battery, uh, by definition, takes about 90 uh, folks to operate and maintain that system. So the the numbers are commensurate with uh, what one would expect in terms of operating the Patriot battery that will be delivered to Ukraine. But think about it this way. This is going to take several months of training here in Oklahoma. It normally takes maybe a year or maybe even two years to be fully trained by the U.S. Army on how to operate this system. Is this normal, Louis? I, I get that we've hosted other military allies here for training purposes, but is there a precedent for us hosting foreign militaries on our own soil during a hot war in which we're saying, we're claiming that we're not actively involved? Not really, Brad. Uh, the U.S. has extensive training programs with uh, foreign militaries all the time. They come here to the United States, but they're, they're not involved in combat training. And you're exactly right. This is a hot war. Um, these are troops that are going to be pulled from the battlefield in Ukraine. They're going to come to the United States. In terms of United States training um, any military personnel during another conflict, that's really not something that happens normally, not at all. We've trained thousands of uh, Ukrainian troops inside U.S. military facilities uh, inside of Germany. Um, Other countries have also brought in uh, thousands of Ukrainian troops um, that have been pulled from the battlefield so that they can train on the systems that they, too, are giving Ukraine. Is there a line for us, Louis, as to when Russia sees us as actively fighting them? Like, at this point... Russia's fighting Ukraine. They've said we don't want to be fighting other countries. And if, you know, the U.S. or if NATO attacks us, we will declare war on those countries. At what point does the U.S. worry about being seen as actively fighting Russia? Right. That's been a concern the whole time. We're nearing on a year now that this war has been going on inside of Ukraine. And with any weapons shipment, there have always been concerns of, is this too much? Is this something that's going to antagonize the Russians? Um, But it's been the battlefield developments that have really driven what the United States has been giving to Ukraine. And we've seen the rhetoric really spike up from the Russians. Uh, Remember the concerns way back over back in September or so about um, are they potentially going to use nuclear weapons inside of Ukraine? Uh, as a demonstration. And that's legitimate. But what you're seeing as well is that the goalposts for the United States giving more and more complicated and complex systems uh, to the Ukrainians keeps shifting. And now as this war drags on, potentially beyond this year, you have to start asking yourself, okay, uh, does that now include longer term uh, training for potentially F-16s, which is something that 
the Ukrainians have really desperately claimed for, mm. but the United States has said that we're not willing to give them because, number one, it takes the intensive level of training, and number two, again, how will Russia respond? Like a difference between giving somebody artillery and and the actual and like the planes that, that then go on bombing raids. All right, Louis Martinez at the Pentagon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, when it comes to renewable energy in this country, not everyone's got such a sunny outlook. We're back in a bit. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more or I'd read a book or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. You might remember one of our specials from last year about a community in rural Ohio where residents were in this heated debate over whether solar energy should be allowed in their town. Industrial solar companies are raping agricultural farmland at an alarming rate. This needs to stop. And this spoke to a growing concern in countless cities around the country. How do we adapt to what is clearly a shifting economy, a warming planet, and will communities' futures be shaped forever by what they choose to do right now? The United States and the European Union are going to work together to take concrete measures to reduce dependence on natural gas, period. Well, in this town, you'll remember, the proposal on the table was solar energy. Dozens of farmers were being approached by the solar company to turn some of their rows and rows of corn and soybeans into a field of solar panels. And some neighbors thought these fields looked like a dystopian nightmare. They started calling these farms the Black Sea. They're worried that if more neighbors sign these solar leases, 
rural Williamsport, Ohio will go from American Gothic to something unrecognizable. The anti-solar effort then came in, starting with phone calls and meetings between neighbors, turned into this full-blown campaign all over town. Well, the reason I bring this up is because there has been a major update in the sun power battle. ABC climate producer Tracy Wolf and Dan Garino from Inside Climate News, who partnered with us here, are taking us back to Williamsport today with this latest update. Dan, let's start with you. I mean, what is going on here? What's the news? So in short, the opponents won. Hmm. The opponents who were trying to stop this gigantic project from getting built, they were able to convince their local government and the developer, uh, EDF Renewables, which is a major international developer of renewable projects, they could see um, the pattern of what projects were getting approved and what projects were getting caught in this kind of quagmire of opposition and they withdrew their project rather than go through what would have been a prolonged effort that they thought probably would have ended in them not getting approved. Um, so we never got to see the really big fight. Um, the kind of pre-fight ended up killing this project. How? How How did the opposition win so sort of early in this process? The opposition won because they organized the heck out of this community. So I ask that you please deny the Circleville Solar Project and other solar projects in Pigway County. We will not benefit from these projects. It will only hurt our economy and the families that reside here. This is community organizing like I have not seen. And I covered politics for years. I've seen community organizing in lots of places. This is a door-to-door effort where... If the developer goes to meet with somebody to talk to them about the project, somebody who was against it, who was that person's neighbor, had already been there three times. We've got the yield, like Iowa yields. And then it's so sad to... uh, These farms that they're going to tear up, they'll never be farmland again. This message that that solar is going to be harmful, um, a message that contained some aspects that I think were fair criticisms and some that were not based in uh, not based in reality, I don't think. But that opposition um, spread. You'll ruin the community as far as a farming community. It'd just be like an industrial thing that'll never go back to farming so they can forget about that. And it spread through just tireless organizing. Uh, and it kind of showed... Whether it's going to be a community organizing to support something like this or a community organizing to oppose something like this, it's kind of who does the work. And the opponents really, really did the work in this case. Tracy, whenever I think of solar, like who doesn't like solar energy? Like it's fine. How surprising was it to you that sort of anti-solar advocates were able to, as Dan just said, like organize the heck out of this? So it's interesting you say that, Brad, because the anti-solar grassroots organizers would actually tell you, and they've told us numerous times, They support renewable energy. They like renewable energy. This isn't about for them, you know, that they don't want renewable energy. It's that they don't want renewable energy, you know, in their neighbor's farmland or taking over. In their huge, huge backyards. Correct. And so, you know, we've often asked the question ourselves, well, you know, how would they feel if this was a nuclear power plant? And I think they'd feel, you know, the same way, regardless of whatever energy it is. This was really more about changing, um, you know, a way of life, changing the landscape. These were things that they didn't want to see change. What about the little people who have made their homes out in the countryside? That's their place of Zen. And now they have to look at this monstrosity of an eyesore. 
Dan, you've met these people. Both of you guys have met these people. But Dan, you've like been in their living rooms for a long time now. I mean, what happens to these families, especially the ones who had kind of invested their futures in renewable energy and solar in their in their in their fields here? So a lot of this reporting, um, we were looking through the the viewpoint of one family locally, um, the Shine family. You know, I, I just can't understand why they would pull the plug on it. They are uh, in the community for much more than a century. They've been there forever. They're relatively small farmers. These are not uh, these are not mega farms, uh, and these are, this is not like a super rich mega farming family. And you know, there's a couple people here in the community. I don't think I'll ever speak to the rest of my life. For them, this project was the difference between a kind of stable retirement and a comfortable retirement, um, and it also meant that they could have left a legacy, a substantial legacy for their children and grandchildren. And I think people that have no interest in my deed to my land or my business has any right to tell me what I can do with it. It was a big deal to them. But one of the important dynamics here is that the Shines were not necessarily the typical family that would be benefit from this. So there were, let's say, a dozen or so families that owned land. Of those, about three um, live locally and have farmland locally. The rest are could be broadly categorized as like land trusts, people whose great-grandfather made a farm or grandfather might have farmed, and there's a whole bunch of land still in the family. And I think this debate would have been different if it was all local landowners who were active in the community, but it just wasn't that way. The people who actually own the bulk of the land don't live there. Tracy, I'm curious what you think. I mean, is this sort of a one-off story, you know, one town kind of reacted differently than you'd expect to this big solar conglomerate? Or is this a sort of conflict that you see playing out much more in the year to come? I think we're already seeing this both in Ohio and nationally. We're seeing these conflicts in farming communities. And in Ohio specifically, where this really comes into play is a couple years ago, um, the Ohio Senate actually gave local county commissioners, more authority to approve or reject these types of projects. And so already in the state of Ohio, there have actually been several counties that have already said, we're never going to consider large-scale renewable energy projects, point blank. Um, But we were really surprised because we found another county that was actually doing the opposite. Where do we start and stop taking away land rights? Uh, Is it with something like... um, weighing in on whether somebody can fly an American flag on their property or not. Um, it just, to me, it's a very slippery slope and one that I don't want to see us go down in Clark County. We did speak to a county commissioner from Clark County, Ohio, and there they actually have decided, no, you know what, we believe this is a landowner rights issue and we're going to say we will consider these projects. Now, I will say that the commissioner did to tell me that this doesn't mean they're open for business for renewable energy. This is them trying to support landowner rights and allow farmers to decide what they want to do with their land. Some of the farmers that I've talked to who are adamantly opposed to these projects have benefited from the very freedom that I'm trying to protect. So we did reach out to the opposition group. They're called the Pickaway County Citizens Against Industrial Solar on Farmland. And they sent us the following statement. The overwhelming local opposition to industrial solar speaks for itself. 
the negative effects on neighboring properties, the economic loss due to the change from agriculture, the loss of jobs, the undesirable aesthetic change in an area protected by zoning, the devaluing of the community, all played a role in our united opposition. All of the county commissioners and township trustees wrote resolutions against the project. The company made the right decision to move out of the area. And Brad, there's one thing that we we really should mention here too, which is that this project would have given local governments more than $3 million a year uh, in taxes. And in a small rural community, that is some serious money. It takes money to run these places. And and for the, you know for the likes of them telling the school doesn't need money, the fire department, the squads don't need money. Uh, you know, it, it, they need the money. Over the course of 30 years, we're talking in the neighborhood of $100 million. Most of that would have gone to schools. Um, and this community, they knew that those kind of numbers were on the table, and they still said, no, we don't want it. And I think this speaks to this larger and really important issue, which is, if solar is viewed as so odious in a, in a place like this, in a lot of um, rural communities, we're going to have a, a lot of problems with the transition to clean energy. One of the larger themes that was reinforced over and over and over again is that rural America and rural communities really need to feel like they're a part of the energy transition. And if they don't, we're going to just see like stuff like this all the time. Yeah. And as clean energy experts will say, like, you're going to need more than rooftops to make this work. Like, you're going to need many, many gigawatts of energy. So if this is sort of the vibe in communities with a lot of space across the country, what does that mean for the entire energy picture in the U.S.? All right. Tracy Wolf from ABC and Dan Garino from Inside Climate News. Thank you so much. Great reporting. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, were you canceled, really? Or were you just placed on sabbatical? The Golden Globes have their answer. One last thing is next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And one last thing. It's that time of year in Hollywood. It's awards season. And last night, that kicked off with an awards show that some thought was gone for good. Welcome to the 80th annual Golden Globe Awards. Yeah, the Golden Globes are back after not being televised at all last year. If you can remember, winners were actually announced via Twitter. I'm here because I'm black. NBC opted not to air the 2022 ceremony after mounting criticism of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, the organization that puts on the event. Jason, it sounds busy. Where are you right now? Well, I'm on the the actual silver carpet or gray carpet at the Golden Globes. I don't know what color it's actually supposed to be here, um, but it is what you would you know, consider the red carpet here. That's ABC's entertainment correspondent, Jason Nathanson, who said, if you had not been paying attention over the last couple of years, you might not have known there was anything amiss here. But the complaints about this ceremony were not minor issues. They went to the very core of longstanding complaints about Hollywood. The Golden Globes has been respected, but also some kind, somewhat of a joke. People knew that they nominated things just to get stars here, like big names, like Angelina Jolie or Johnny Depp back in the day. 
Now, frankly, that's a common dig about a lot of award shows, but everything about the Globe seems to take it a step further. A New York Times report claimed that Hollywood foreign press members would often get offered free trips and extravagant meals as part of their consideration process. They get preferential treatment for interviews, whether their publication was a notable one or not. It's really easy to influence 90 people versus, say, the Oscars, where thousands of people are voting. So influence was one thing. Another was in this investigation by the LA Times that revealed there were zero black members at all voting on the Golden Globes. Not one. Hollywood power brokers said they were outraged. Tom Cruise sent back his previous Globes. NBC canceled its broadcast. And yet last night, NBC's cameras were back and so were the stars. We showed the world what black unity, leadership and love looks like beyond behind and in front of the camera. There are a lot of big name stars here. And it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, just a year ago, publicists were telling their stars not to be associated with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association or the Golden Globes. Now, they did do some stuff. They added up, I think they more than doubled their membership They brought up the diversity in their ranks, so they say... uh, In addition to adding members, Jason says, the Hollywood Foreign Press also banned gifts and implemented a stricter code of ethics. The host last night was notably comedian Jared Carmichael, who's gay and black. One minute, you're making mint tea at home. The next, you're invited to be the black face of an embattled white organization. Some stars still boycotted, including... Brendan Fraser, nominated for Best Actor in The Whale, just didn't show up. But for many, this was a test run, a Tuesday night audition to see if the Globes can return to their more prestigious slot in future years. After all, studios love getting awards. If someone's offering them, well, maybe that's an offer you can't refuse. By the way, speaking of awards, for which we did not gift anyone any lobster dinners, we won two big podcast awards yesterday, you guys. The Signal Awards recognized the best in the game. We won the jury's prize for best news and politics podcast. We were also listener's choice for best writing for our episode Mother Tongue, which was hosted by producer Vika Aronson. So you remember when I was asking all you to go vote online? Man, our listeners deliver. Sincere thanks for that, and huge congrats to our team. Several other awards for ABC Pods, too. Reclaimed, the story of Mamie Till Mobley, Life Out Loud with Elsie Granderson. You should definitely check those out. And guess what? A new ABC podcast out today called Truth and Lies, The Informant. That's available starting right now. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.